Before any medical procedure, doctors need to obtain consent from the patient. But what if you're a small child and there's nothing wrong with you? And doctors and your parents are very keen that you donate your healthy tissue. Dr Sheening Then is a senior lecturer at QUT. She's just published a book titled Children as Tissue Donors, which explores complex legal and ethical issues around consent. Well, the most common situation is that they've got a sick sibling and um, the tissue that they have is, is compatible with their sick sibling and can actually offer a cure for um, the condition that their sick sibling has. And what kind of tissue are we talking about? The most common form is either bone marrow or known as peripheral blood stem cells. So it's sort of two different ways to obtain the stem cells that are used as, um, as a potential cure for the sick sibling. So generally speaking, we're not talking about full-on organ transplants. We're talking about a procedure to access uh, bone marrow or stem cells. Yeah, no, so this differs from like your whole organ type of transplants because the tissue we're talking about is fully regenerative. I guess that's the main distinction between that and say something like a kidney, which obviously you can't grow again. How often are children used as tissue donors in Australia? The most recent stats sort of show about 32 children on average would, would act as a, as a donor for a sick sibling or relative. If you're talking globally, then you're looking at kind of thousands of children per year. How old are these children? Really, it's anything from about six months up to adulthood. Obviously, the very small six-month-year-old, that's very, very rare, but it's not completely unheard of. And did you get a sense of what the youngest age was here in Australia? Again, I think people have talked about that sort of six months to 12 months. I think someone talked about an eight-month-old, possibly. And certainly we've got one court case where they're talking about a 13-month-old, so just over one. So that's probably... The boundaries, but again, I, I can't say that I've surveyed you know every clinician in Australia to find out what their experience is. And I think that court case had to go to court because it involved cousins or, or aunts and uncles as opposed to um, parents or, or siblings. Yeah, that's right. So if you can't satisfy the legislative conditions and, and the conditions in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland talk about a sibling and in um, in Queensland talk about a parent as well, if you can't fit within those, then, then really you, you have to go to court to get permission. So that's how those ended up in court. Do these processes involve any pain, risk, potential harm to the donors? Look, there is a, a small, I guess, level of risk associated with them. It is a, is a non-therapeutic procedure, so it's not going to be of any physical benefit to the child who acts as a donor. Um, in all likelihood, they'll have a general anaesthetic and then they'll have an invasive procedure to remove the cells. So there is some levels of physical risk associated with that. Obviously, the, the main risk is associated with going under a general anaesthetic. But there's also subsequent risks of things like infection at the site, and experiencing some bone pain and those types of things. So it, it's significant probably for a child to have to go into hospital for a day to have these types of procedures. Now, as part of your research, you spoke to a number of healthcare professionals who work in this area. What sorts of ethical dilemmas did they share with you in terms of their interactions with donor kids? Yeah, I, I suppose some of the, the main sort of ethical dilemmas they faced were often to do with when they perceived that a child was sort of objecting or not wanting to participate as a donor. Um, and that might be where you're dealing with small kids who really just don't like being in a hospital and don't like having injections. And that can be, you know, ethically confronting to have to put them into that situation where they're experiencing pain. But it also, um, they also talked a little bit about sometimes older children who um, expressed objections at various points in, in the process. 
What would happen if a, if a child is on a bed and it's being wheeled down to the operating theatre and is screaming, I don't want to do this? I mean, they might have given the, their consent earlier on, but at that point they're saying, no, no, don't proceed. What happens at that point? Look, we did have a couple of um, people who actually had experienced something similar to that, not so much the wheeling down the, the corridor, but, um, you know, they thought they'd had initial consent and then on the day the child presented and said, look, I don't want to do this. And at, at that point, I guess the ethical conundrum for the clinicians is that the recipient has already undergone sort of conditioning. So they've t- undertaken steps to destroy that recipient's bone marrow. So time is of the essence, right? So, yeah, at that point, time is definitely of the essence. And so obviously where you've got a situation where a slightly older child is then saying, I don't want to do this, that is, that's hugely problematic for them. And people describe that dilemma as like a transplanter's worst nightmare, as you can imagine. And they talked about different strategies, I guess, that they used. And in the circumstances that they described, the child who was objecting did come round and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll do it. But it brought to light, I guess, the fact that that child had never had a very good relationship with the recipient and there was a whole lot of underlying psychological issues there that hadn't been explored properly. Do doctors simply ever not proceed because a child at some point in the process refuses? From the clinicians that I spoke to, a couple of them had talked about situations in the adult space where there had been a refusal and in some cases a refusal sort of a late refusal that had resulted in the death of a recipient but I think what differs in the pediatric space is that clinicians talked in some ways about the need to really convince a child who has a late objection of the consequences of what they're doing to the point that they use the language that they would be strongly coercing the child to continue on and and donate. We're talking about a little kid who might be having a tantrum, but obviously, you know, legitimately extremely upset about having a procedure that they don't want, which might be incredibly painful. They might have enormous fear and anxiety about. Would you ever strap the child down and continue? So I think what came out from the interviews that I had with the clinicians was that a younger child's objection based on things like fear of hospitals, um, fear of needles, that kind of thing, wasn't viewed in the same light as an adolescent objection where there had been long-standing issues, familial issues between like the proposed donor and the recipient. The younger child's objection didn't seem to be taken as a true objection like the adolescent objection. That's complex, isn't it? It I is, mean, yeah. If you acquiesced to the concern, the distress, slash the tantrum, I know they're loaded terms in either direction, if a desperately sick child subsequently dies because of acquiescing, that intention is expressed by the donor child, well, there might be issues about the donor child's well-being down the track if their sibling subsequently dies. How you actually frame the best interest of the donor child is incredibly complex. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that clinicians talked about as well was looking down the track and seeing, well, how is this child, the proposed donor, going to feel in 10 years' time when, you know, they realise the true implications of, of their refusal, for example? I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that in some ways, ethically, it's more justifiable maybe to override that small child's objection, the one that doesn't like needles, the one that doesn't like being in a hospital, because that perhaps that child is really, truly unable to comprehend the implications of not going through with this operation. Whereas if you're talking about a 16, 17-year-old 
perhaps that argument isn't as convincing at that level of um, maturity. And uh, Xining, then, do you know of any instances where the child was coerced, forced to go through with it? Um, not from the interviews that I had. There was often talks of, oh, well, uh, in one case, there happened to be two siblings that were a match and they asked the older child, which is what you, you commonly do, and the appropriate thing to do, and that child said no, but they were able to fall back on then the younger child who was a match and they agreed. So, you know, <laughs> I haven't heard of any situations that really resulted in, like, the worst outcome, which is obviously the recipient dying because they don't have a donor. There are ways that, obviously, clinicians have come to, to manage these things and getting multidisciplinary teams involved to try and uh, deal with these issues of relationships prior to when you get to the pointy end. Did you even anecdotally hear of um, situations where the child was coerced into proceeding? I mean, we're only getting it from the clinician's perspective. I didn't speak to donor children themselves, so it's possible that some donor children would have felt coerced. And there are small-scale studies that have followed up donor children or children who who've donated and who are now in adulthood and they do talk use the term I felt coerced I did I felt I wasn't given a choice so there's that possibility it is a live possibility it's so far we've been talking here about relationships between medical teams and, and the donors but I'm imagining the relationship between the donors and their parents will be 10 times more fraught because they'll be under enormous pressure to do the right thing by their desperately sick sibling yeah, definitely. So they've gone through this journey with their sick sibling, where the sick sibling has experienced all sorts of horrible physical interventions and ailments. And then they're asked to decide something that's relatively physically insignificant for their well child. So their decision making is certainly coloured by the experiences they've had with their sick child. And some people saw that in the parents and tried to kind of make the point that here the decision is about your well child. Let's swing it back to focusing on the well child. So that's certainly something that clinicians talked quite a bit about. So you talk to clinicians, you're an expert in the law. What do you think might be the way forward to make sure that everybody's best interests are best balanced? What my research showed is historically that donor children have been a bit of an overlooked group. So their rights and their interests haven't been given as much attention as I think that they deserve. What I'm pleased to, to see is that over the past decade or so, that seems to be readjusting. And I think key to recognising and respecting children's rights is making sure that they have independent treating teams, so they're not seen by the same doctors and nurses as the recipient is, so they've got their own team that's able to speak up for them. And the risk, I guess, of having one treating team for both the donor and the recipient is that 90 or 95% of their focus will be on the desperately sick child as opposed to on the, on the donor. Yeah, there's a, a sort of an unintentional conflict of interest there because obviously they want the sick child to be well. I've spoken to people who have acted as independent medical practitioners for donor children. In one case, an independent medical practitioner saw some asthma and some potential heart issues that hadn't been addressed in the donor child in an appropriate time frame because of the sick sibling. So, you know, the potential donor child is a patient themselves, so they should have their own team. And sometimes that means in, uh, including someone that's going to advocate for them. So in some of the guidelines, they talk about having a donor advocate for the child someone for them to talk to, to ask questions, someone's going to champion their interests. And I think that is a, a good move. 
Dr. Xining Then, Senior Lecturer at QUT and author of a new book titled Children as Tissue Donors, which is published by Springer. Now, we didn't get time, but there are of course, curly ethical issues around so-called saviour siblings. That's where parents actually screen embryos to ensure a younger sibling will be a compatible match for a sick older sibling. Complicated. 